Hello and welcome to another episode of Stronger Together, the official podcast of your union, SEIU 503. I am super excited about this episode because today we're talking about something that many people say is the backbone of our union, stewards. Stewards and the union staff who support them are the people who provide leadership and work sites and also help SEIU members when their rights have been violated. There's an old saying, unions are like a lock on your door. If someone is trying to convince you that you don't need one, you definitely need one. And one of the reasons that rings true is because stewards, staff attorneys, and organizers help members push back when management violates the contract. And we're really effective at it. Today we'll hear from two union stewards and our staff attorney, and we'll learn what they do, when they might come in handy, and how you can get in touch with them. A quick reminder, if you don't follow us on social media, make sure to check us out on our Facebook and Twitter pages at SEIU Local 503 or on Instagram at SEIU 503. And if you're not on social media, you can get the latest news and information at our website, SEIU503.org. Okay, we're here today with Mickey Varney, who is a longtime leader in our union. Mickey, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Well, thank you for providing this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so before we jump in, could you introduce yourself to everyone? Uh, maybe let us know who you are, where you work, and how long you've been a member of SEIU. Okay. Well, again, I'm Mickey Varney, and I work as a salmon biologist for the state of Oregon, and I am the chief steward for ODFW, which is the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife statewide. And in terms of being a member in SEIU, I came to Oregon in 2010 and immediately became a member. Uh, in terms of leadership roles, I'm a past assistant director for the ODOT Coalition. And currently, I am on the Cape Council. I'm the Region 3 co-chair. I'm also a bargaining delegate, a general council delegate, and I am co-chair of the statewide steward committee. It's a busy schedule you got there. Definitely. <laughs> so um, we're really excited to have you on today. The The last role you mentioned, uh, being a part of the Stewards Committee, is what we really want to focus on in this episode. And it's a really important topic. I think representation is one of the most important, but sometimes one of the least visible parts of our union. And when I say representation, I mean our union's role in representing workers when they're mistreated, when they're wrongfully terminated, or when their rights are violated. This is an incredibly important function. Some might even say it's the core function of a union, uh, but because it's one of those things that you don't see until you need it, not everyone experiences it. Um, you know, Our bargaining work and our organizing work is very visible, so people might forget that a huge amount of our resources are spent protecting members when they least expect it, but need it most. And, you know, we're trying to make this work more visible. And we're also trying to talk about the other roles that stewards have outside of just grievances that uh, could be useful to people every single day. So, Mickey, you've already been a big help in uh, doing this, and I'm really excited for what's to come. Uh, so to kick things off, uh, let's, you know, let's start with the basics. Could you tell us, you know, what a steward is? Well, a steward, uh, boy, wow, what's the best way to explain this? Um, a steward, we are the face of our union. We connect our coworkers to our union. We are the individuals in the workplace that our coworkers see as representing our union. We do contract enforcement. And when I say that, the contract is a collective bargaining agreement between management and our union. And it includes uh, 
you know, language that covers our working conditions like scheduling, use of leave, uniform allowances, travel, et cetera. The other thing that uh, is important uh, in being a steward is we are a resource. We explain procedures, disciplinary procedures, and we are very familiar with agency policies, some labor law, and we do a lot of outreach and education to our members and others that we represent. Yeah, and how did you first get involved with stewarding? What brought you in? Well, part of it is a, a passion to do so. Uh, <laughs> my uh, initial job, I was in Newport the first couple of years. And um, let's see, uh, my job, I was responsible for uh, taking information that the port samplers collected on the recreational and commercial fisheries and making catch and effort estimates. Well, along with that analysis, I also was the assistant supervisor of 20, probably close to 30 samplers up and down the coast. And so I was responsible for the scheduling, for training, and, and working with them. And one of the things I noticed was we count on these individuals every single day to produce the information we use to manage our fisheries. And to me, the better you treat your employees, the better the quality of work you have. And work, you know, work is something that we all have to do to support our families and ourselves, but that doesn't mean that it needs to be something you hate. <laughs> and so for me, having a positive work environment is crucial. And so when I got into that position, I saw a real need, and I won't go into the details, but a lot of that ties back to when I was leading harvest crews for 15 years back in southeastern Washington as I was growing up. Uh, just, you know, just being a great manager is important. Yeah, that's a really good point, you know, and a steward is um, in a lot of ways a leader, um, you know. And so maybe uh, if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what does it mean to be a good steward and what is the relationship that a steward has with the workers they're representing? I think most important are the qualities, being willing to listen, being open, being non-judgmental, uh, having a passion to make the workplace better. So in terms of fairness, equity, uh, integrity is very, very crucial. And for somebody interested in becoming a steward, it requires not only empathy, where you put yourself in, selves in your coworkers' shoes, but it's also compassion, where you actually take action to help alleviate or make a poor situation better. Um, let's see, stewards. All yeah, you also you, you need to be dependable and inclusive, and people have to be able to trust you. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um... So I want to ask you a couple of more specific questions here, and I just want to flag that uh, Mickey is a public uh, employee, a public sector worker, and the uh, a large part of our union, particularly home care workers, have a very different stewarding relationship um, that we'll address in another part of this podcast with a different interview. Um, but Mickey's experiences are really focused on uh, public sector work. Um, so I wanted to ask you about... One of the most important things that stewards do, which is help people with the grievance process and through uh, discipline um, at work. And um, I wanted to 
to start off by saying that sometimes this kind of work can be reduced by anti-union people to just, you know, quote, protecting bad employees. And, uh, you know, what would you say to someone who held that belief about this part of the work? Well, uh, our primary role in, along with communication is enforcing our collective bargaining agreement. And I know some people that aren't really aware of what we do don't realize that we are enforcing the language in that contract. So when somebody is disciplined, there are certain set of stages that need to be gone through so that the individual has a fair process of being evaluated to make sure the appropriate discipline is administered. And so there may be some behavior that happens that an individual might think that that person should be fired for, but in or be dismissed for, but in reality, that individual needs to know what the rules are and they need to be warned that if they break the rule, they will incur a discipline. And when that doesn't happen, there's not just cause for that discipline or disciplinary action to be applied. And so when individuals outside say, all we do is protect, you know, poor workers. No, we hold workers accountable for their actions, but we also ensure that management follows the correct process so that that individual has due process. Yeah. You know, and there's a long history, um, of people being targeted at work for reasons that are really abhorrent, like uh, people being targeted for being black or for being gay or ageism and things like that. And the union contract, it, it goes a really long way to help uh, preventing things like that. I mean, do you see your role as a steward as having an impact on the equity of a workplace? Oh, of course, of course, because, uh the individuals that are greatly impacted are often the ones that are very reluctant to come forward and ask for help because they don't want the attention drawn to them. So as a steward, you are confidential, you explain situations, and you explain what can be done to help alleviate what is going on. And so in that sense, we have a very large and important role within our agencies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just something that's always struck me as being, you know, really important about labor unions is the way that, um, you know, just having a contract and having a structure to fall back on really just makes things more fair for people. And stewards play a huge role in that, of course. Um, but, you know, it's also not just this kind of grievance stuff. You mentioned at the beginning a lot of other things that stewards do. Could you could maybe talk a little bit more about some of the other roles you play? Well, one of the primary roles is <laughs> our relationship with management. And that relationship doesn't always have to be adversarial or controversial. It's important to be able to negotiate and open up channels for communication and and model and show that we want to solve things at the lowest level possible. And that's important to us 
um, you know, not only for management, but also for our union that we are working together collaboratively to come to more positive solutions that are not only good for the, for the agency, but also for our, our coworkers. Yeah. And, you know, what do you mean when you say um, solving problems at the lowest level possible? Well, instead of escalating to an upper level of discipline or having things kind of go off the wheels with rumors and et cetera, um, it's important to address an issue that comes up as soon as it does and offer solutions and ways that it can be addressed, um, you know, at the lowest level without um, making it more of a hardship on those involved in whatever issue it is. I see. So bringing folks together, having a conversation, getting to a solution, moving forward. Uh, you know, a well-functioning workplace kind of would handle things that way. Right. And it's important as a steward to be aware of what's going on around within your workplace. Uh, and for me, it's for statewide. So monitoring what's going on with email communications, um, you know, newsletters, things that go out to employees, and also seeing the feedback from employees. And we at ODFW actually have an ODFW steward email so that our members can send emails anonymously uh, letting us know about situations that are going on and they can identify themselves or not, or they can bring certain things to our attention. And that's been really, really helpful as along with our monthly uh, statewide meetings that we have to communicate what's going on in workplaces and issues that may be coming up. And also when we start hearing about something happening in one area, we reach out and ask, is this happening statewide? Because it's really important to know if this is an isolated incident or if it's happening throughout the agency. You know, that brings up another interesting point, which is, um, you know, in your role as a chief steward and someone with a lot of experience, you can be a mentor for people. So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you have any words of advice for other folks out there who are new stewards or who have thought about maybe becoming one. Well, I think uh, the best thing would be to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody that is a steward. It's important to uh, get involved, test it out, a couple, uh, attend a couple of trainings for those who are interested in maybe becoming stewards. You know, you need to ask questions of people that have some experience. And I just wanted to say, uh, let's see, what else? Attending sublocal meetings, offering to do other things to communicate with members, maybe updating bulletin boards, volunteering to take notes at meetings, handing out messages to coworkers, running for statewide and local elections. I mean, there are a lot of ways individuals can get involved with their union, but also communicate with other stewards to see if that is a path they would like to go down as well. Yeah, you know, I've heard you mention a lot uh, communicating with, you know, your your coworkers and talking to them about issues, being aware of what's going on. And that's such an important role of any, anyone who's a leader in, in the union. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. Um, and it, it's gotta be challenging in your role as a statewide steward to talk to people who are not necessarily sitting right down the hall from you. How do you guys handle that 
distance with people spread out all over the state? We communicate a lot via email, personal emails. We call one another. We have meetings when we can, but as you said, being spread out throughout out the state, it's hard to get everybody together, you know, as, as a group. So that can be a challenge. Um, I was just thinking as a chief steward, my role is, you know, I was elected by our members and, and what I do is I, I mentor other stewards. I support them. I recruit individuals, uh, encourage them to become stewards. If, their heart tells them that that and passion tells them that they want to go into this role of service because it it is it can be challenging and it takes time and it takes a it takes a commitment to your coworkers and uh, I was going to say when I first came into my agency there were very few stewards and I was pretty much on my own at first I relied on the member resources center for information. But I pretty much had to take on things and and learn through experience. And for me, mentoring our new stewards, working with them, assisting them with their cases and helping them make those steps up that stairway to get that experience are really, really important, not only to me, but to my agency, to, to my coworkers, so that we have individuals as stewards that have experience and training and the confidence to be doing that job and know that they are equals when they are one-on-one -on -one with management. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That structure is just like, we've referred to it before as the backbone of the union. And I think a lot of ways it really is. Um, so, you know, I, we're close to running out of time here, but I wanted to ask you a couple of more questions to the folks out there who aren't stewards, who may be, um, thinking about reaching out to them. So what, when would be the right time for someone to reach out to their steward? What are the, what are the things that might happen at work that um, would really make a person need to have representation from someone like you? Okay. Well, there, there are two separate things. One is if that individual is issue, issued a notice of an investigatory meeting or called into an office or a meeting where uh, there is any chance that a disciplinary action might result uh, from the information gained at that meeting. Those are under our federal, our Weingarten rights. So an individual who's called into a meeting where they expect that there could be a disciplinary action taken as a result of it is entitled to have a steward there. So that's an instance when someone might need a steward. Another one is just if you have questions about agent, your workplace policies, the contract, uh, how things operate. As, as stewards, we have a lot of experience with all these different areas, and so we're a really good resource, but we also know where to go for that information when people ask questions. All right. So it's, it's one on, on the one hand, it's a proactive thing. People should be reaching out to their stewards, developing those relationships so that they're just informed. And then there's also the reactive piece where if they're in a situation where they need representation, um, they can have a steward available to them. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned wine, wine garden rights. Would you quickly explain for everybody what those are? Uh, well, they were guaranteed, I'm trying to think, uh, 
through a case, so it's federal. It it was a case that was decided, and as I said, your Weingarten rights uh, guarantee you the right to have a steward there when you are being asked questions that could lead to a disciplinary action. So whether you're given an official notice that there's an investigatory meeting, whether you're called into an office with your supervisor and they start asking you questions about why you took your break at this certain time or why you didn't call in or asking you certain things about you know, scheduling or it, it's, it's different from your job performance per se in terms of tasks and responsibility. What I'm uh, referring to specifically is when your steward is asking about you know, specific things about what you're doing with it, whether it be timesheets, uh, whether it be posting something on social media, whether it be personal use of a cell phone. I mean, certain things that are against agency policies or sound like they may be, you know, if they're investigating or asking you questions about that, then by all means, ask to have a steward there with you. Yes, and I, I looked this up while you were um, talking, and that case, the Wine Garden case, is, goes all the way back to 1975. So these have been around for quite a while. Um, and if anyone would like to uh, read up on them a bit more, uh, you can do so at our website, seiu503.org. One of the links in the main menu is My Rights at Work, and you can uh, go there and read up about all this kind of stuff. Um, also, under the Get Involved section of the website, um, the very first thing under there is a uh, stewards page where you can learn a little bit more about the roles of a steward. Um, and uh, you can find a schedule of steward trainings around the state uh, that you can attend and really get uh, some more information about what this is all like and get the, actually get involved in the stewarding program if you're interested in doing so. So a uh, quick plug for that there. Um, so, uh, Mickey, the last thing I want to ask you is, um, to, you know, to imagine you're speaking to someone out there who, um, is involved in the union or cares deeply about, uh, you know, their coworkers and isn't really doing anything. What, what's the pitch you would make to them that, um, this work is important and that we, we need more people stepping up to do it? Well, being a steward is really essential to keeping our union visible uh, and present in our workplaces and to ensure that our coworkers have the best working conditions, uh, are working in a safe place. Um, and it's important for us to have a voice in the workplace, and our stewards provide that. Stewards also in addition to just that connection to our union, they build solidarity and they are somebody that you can trust. And that's a, you know, that's a pretty big shoe to fill, but it's a very, very important shoe to fill. And then lastly, someone who is knowledgeable about our contract and about policies is such a valuable individual and, uh, yeah, we need stewards, definitely. So uh, if you're interested in becoming a steward, please reach out, ask questions, and I can help you. Other stewards can help you. 
Um, it's a fantastic role. It's very rewarding. It does take time and commitment, but uh, I <laughs> I wouldn't give it up for anything. Great. Well, thank you, Mickey, so much for joining us today and for everything that you do to make our union stronger. Well, thank you so very much. It's just, it's been wonderful. Uh, boy, we could talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much. In this segment, we've got Jared Franz on the line. Uh, Jared's an attorney for SEIU 503. Jared, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks. Happy to be here. So in the previous segments, we've heard from union stewards who are members in work sites and in the community who do the bulk of the work in our steward program. And their goal in many cases is to resolve workplace issues at the lowest level. But that is not always possible. Sometimes uh, a grievance will escalate. And that's when people like Jared come in. Um, so Jared, I, you know, to get us started, could you let us know just what's your role in the grievance, pro grievance process and how do things get to you? How does that happen? Um, things get to me uh, and more generally things get to the legal department of the union when a grievance or a dispute hasn't been resolved through the grievance process. Um, the legal department of the union doesn't usually touch a, a dispute until members um, and other leaders in the union um, have failed to resolve the issue uh, on their own and they need backup. So that's what the legal department does. We provide backup um, and solutions to try to find uh, resolution to, to all these disputes. And that um, usually includes arbitration, um, but we also facilitate a lot of settlements. Great. Yeah. So hopefully most of our members don't actually ever have to deal with an arbitration situation, uh, but because that is one of the common uh, ways in which grievances are resolved, would you mind explaining to us what arbitration is? Sure. Um, our arbitration is basically the end point of the grievance process uh, uh, in our union contracts. Um, it's pretty much like any court proceeding that you've seen on TV um, where there are two sides. They both call witnesses. Uh, there's a judge. Uh, in this case, it's an arbitrator. Uh, people present evidence, make motions, uh, ask questions, cross-examine, all the things that you're familiar with uh, just by watching TV or having participated in a court proceeding yourself. Um, the big difference is that it's usually a lot more casual. Uh, typically, they're held in just a large conference room in a union hall instead of a courtroom. Um, there's very relaxed rules of evidence um, and formality. Um, all the main rules still apply. Uh, you know, you can't make things up. <laughs> you do have to provide evidence. Um, you do swear an oath uh, with the arbitrator. So all those kinds of formal rules apply, but it's the proceeding that's conducted much more informally than a, a court hearing. And what kind of cases tend to go to arbitration versus uh, settlement? Yeah, there's, so there's two main kinds of cases that go to arbitration. Um, there's contract interpretation cases and just cause termination cases. Uh, contract interpretation case are the most difficult for the union to win um, because the basis of the of the case or the grievance is that an employer has violated a term or provision of the contract and the burden is on the union um, to prove that that happened. Um, 
the other kinds of case that goes to arbitration are just cause termination cases. Usually uh, these are a little easier than contract interpretation cases because the employer has the burden of proving that they had just cause to terminate an employee. But of course, these cases are really heavily dependent on the facts and they can be more or less complicated depending on what happened. You know, so in either case, you have a situation where uh, a member of the union is in a tough spot. I mean, getting terminated, for example, is a place that no one really wants to be at. And, you know, it strikes me that in cases like this, it's really just so incredibly valuable to have someone like you who can come in and represent people, representation that our dues pay for. It's kind of like, you know, you need you need us the most when you least expect it when something like this happens. Um, and I was just kind of wondering... You know, how frequent is st- are stuff like this? Like how many arbitration cases and settlements do you guys process in a year? Uh, we process a lot, uh, actually. We are fortunate in the legal department at SEIU 503 to be supported by a, a really incredible um, MRC and MRC organizers who resolve a lot of cases through the grievance process and negotiate a lot of settlements uh, that the legal department then t- takes a look at. Um, and approves. Um, but yeah, it's, um, usually we screen about 10 cases a month. This may be my guess. Um, not all of those will advance to arbitration. Um, but we do have arbitrations scheduled out at least one a month for basically forever. Um, and our arbitration workload has recently been impacted quite a bit by COVID because all of the hearings that we had scheduled over the last few months had to be canceled and rescheduled because we can't, couldn't have in-person hearings and people are hesitant to have Zoom hearings for lots of different reasons um, that I think people don't need to explain to them if they've ever been on a Zoom call and know how they, they drop or have problems. And if you're job depends on you winning this hearing, uh, people are obviously and, and reasonably hesitant about Zoom hearings. So we get a lot of requests. Um, and, because, and because a lot of the people involved in the arbitration process are super busy, including state and federal arbitrators, they have to get scheduled months and months out, um, sometimes even over a year out after uh, the original grievance was filed, because we get so many requests. Yeah, I mean, I know it's a lot of stuff. Uh, one thing I want to flag is that Jared mentioned the MRC. That is the Member Resource Center. It's a group of staff at the union who assist stewards and members in dealing with grievance process. Uh, if you ever need to reach them, you can call our, us at one 503 seiu That's one 503 And ask to be put in touch with your steward or the Member Resource Center and they'll transfer you right along. And all of the stuff that we're talking about, uh, the MRC, the the call center who takes your call when you call up, people like Jared, this is all paid for by union dues and represents um, all of the representational services or many of the representational services that our union pays for, which is roughly 90 or so percent of um, the total dues that SEIU members bring into our union. Um, and so, I want to move on a little bit and ask you, Jared, if you could just explain 
what are some of the situations in which a, a case might need to be advanced beyond just a, a more casual conversation with a boss and a steward? Uh, what, what are the kind of things that might uh, result in a person needing to go to arbitration? What do the steps look like and in, in how that works? Yeah, so the the specific steps that uh, workers need to follow to advance a case to arbitration vary by worksite um, because they're governed by the grievance steps that are contained in their CBA. So I, I would encourage any steward um, or other representative of the union listening to this to check specific CBAs um, when they're considering grievances and 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 grievance timelines. Great. Yeah. And if anyone is wondering the best way to you know, figure out these things, you can always give us a call and get connected to your steward or the MRC to talk through these issues and get a sense of what those steps are. So Jared, I'm wondering, you know, what, what kind of things make for a strong case for arbitration? What should stewards and members be thinking about as they're going through the initial stages of a grievance process to make sure they're protected in the event that it gets escalated? Yeah, so the, the things that make a case strong in arbitration um, are a lot of the things that you would expect. It's the documents, the written documents that are available to the union to support the case. Um, this is particularly important uh, in contract interpretation cases. Uh, a lot We get a lot of contract interpretation cases that advance to arbitration screening and sometimes to arbitration. Um, and the alleged violation of the contract is often uh, reasonable. It's sometimes intelligent, sometimes even very creative and impressive uh, that somebody found this interpretation in our CBA. But in order to win um, an arbitration over those issues, in order to have a strong case, we need supporting evidence, not just um a good, strong argument or theory of case. Um, and in a contract interpretation case, that includes documented past practice. If a steward can find and identify past practice that supports their position, that's super important. That's going to apply to termination cases as well, because we can use past practice and prior discipline as comparators to see if this uh, employee was terminated fairly or treated fairly relative to other represented employees, or if there's some kind of disparate, uh, disparate treatment. Um, other evidence would be bargaining history in a contract interpretation case. That's really important because usually a contract interpretation case doesn't advance to arbitration unless the contract itself is at least a little ambiguous. And so an arbitrator is going to look at not just what the plain or apparent meaning of the contract is, but what past practice between the parties are and what the bargaining history of the parties reveal. Um, it's not enough to just argue in most of these cases that there is a plausible interpretation of the contract that supports your position. Um, an arbitrator needs to see evidence that that is what the parties meant when they negotiated the contract. And so it's that kind of additional supporting evidence uh, that's really important in contract interpretation cases and is often missing or hard to find. Um, in termination or discipline cases, 
Comparative discipline, as I mentioned earlier, is often really important because it can show disparate treatment or an unfair or insufficient investigation that was done before discipline was issued. Um, and that kind of comparative information is often really valuable to the union. The other thing that makes a big difference, especially in difference in uh, discipline and termination cases, is having really good notes about exactly what was said by everybody involved and when. Now, I know that's not completely possible to get a perfect record of those kinds of things, um, but stewards definitely shouldn't wait to start putting in writing the exact words and phrases that people use. Um, they become very important um, because you can express an idea many different ways and Sometimes the expression of an idea is illegal and violates the contract. And sometimes the expression of that same idea is done in such a way that we can't prosecute it, that it doesn't clearly violate the contract. Um, and so if we have evidence, recordings, video, or even just really excellent notes about exactly what happened, it really helps the MRC and the legal department evaluate likely um, strengths or weaknesses in the case. Um, the devil's always in the details in these cases. It always um, comes down to exactly what happened between this particular people involved. So it's very hard to give large generalizations about what does and does not give a strong case. Um, but the number one thing that we really encourage people to do is really dig for supporting evidence of their position, not just provide plausible explanations of a potential violation of the contract. Thanks. I mean, that's a really good explanation. It's clear that this stuff is complicated and takes time and diligent note keeping and record keeping. And, you know, it just makes me appreciative that in our union, we have folks like you who are paid to think about this stuff all the time, because I know I couldn't handle that on top of my regular job every day. Um, so moving along, you know, I'm wondering if you could share with us what some uh, remedies are when you win arbitration and, and maybe if there are some recent good examples without using any names, obviously, of folks who have used this process and uh, come out on top. Yeah, um, I'm glad you asked about remedies, actually. Um, remedies is something that stewards and other representatives of the union should always think about before even filing a grievance. Um, if you haven't thought about remedies by the time it gets to the arbitration stage, that's usually a sign that your case is not very strong. Um, remedies are really important to think about because they're limited in the labor law context. Remedies that are available to the union tend to just be make whole type remedies. So if you've lost your job, you can get your job back. Um, if you were disciplined for something that you shouldn't have been disciplined for, you can get that discipline removed uh, from your personnel file. Um, you can get reimbursed for any loss of income. But what you can't ask for are the kinds of things that have sort of been made famous by TV dramas and, and court uh, dramas. Things like emotional distress, pain and suffering, uh, the kinds of large multi-million dollar awards uh, that most of us are familiar with, those don't happen in a labor context. Um, 
So there's no McDonald's spilled coffee. There's no McDonald's spilled coffee. No. Um, I mean, when people have really serious injuries like that and they have large claims, stewards are really encouraged uh, to tell workers and to encourage workers to pursue private claims against their employers. Um, They can pursue bully claims. They can uh, contact a private attorney to pursue employment claims that the union isn't able to litigate. Um, And those are where those large remedies come from. Um, The union can only litigate disputes that arise out of the contract, um, other than unfair labor practices, but that's a whole other topic for another day. (laughs) And the remedy that's available in that limited context is simply a make whole remedy. Um, So I'll give you an example, a recent example um, of uh, a worker who was employed by DHS and was unjustly terminated um, for not following DHS policy. The DHS did a pretty shoddy investigation. Um, It was pretty clearly not complete because as the union started investigating it, we found lots of mitigating evidence. We found examples of other workers who were treated differently than this worker. Um, And what the worker had done was uh, a termination for what the worker had done was really disproportionate to the offense. It was an excessive um, punishment. And so we were able um, at the very last minute because DHS realized they were going to lose this case to basically negotiate a, a full remedy in the case. Um, and so it's a good example of what remedies are available. Um, they gave this worker their job back. Um, and in fact, in this specific case, this person's job had changed. And so they found another job that was equivalent that was acceptable to this worker. And the point is that they were reinstated um, to state employment. They got full back wages um, as if they'd never been terminated um, from the state. However, back wages are usually mitigated by any income that you earn after losing your job. So if part of your claim is that you were unjustly terminated and that caused you to lose income, an arbitrator is going to ask what income you've earned since losing that job. And then they're going to deduct that amount um, from any award that you get in back pay. Uh, Incidentally, this is also one reason why the union prefers settlement to arbitration, if possible. It's not always possible. Um, But in settlement, we can get things that we can't get in arbitration, like full back pay, unmitigated by any wages that the person has earned after leaving employment. Um, And in fact, we just won that kind of award very recently in in Jackson County, Um, a full unmitigated uh, back wages for two workers who were unjustly terminated. Um, We can also get out-of-pocket medical expenses, direct kinds of expenses that resulted um, directly from the loss of employment. Um, but that's about it there. There, uh, I mean, it's a lot, uh, in fact, but we can't get loss of reputation, things like that. Um, sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, you know, it's, 
it's really interesting to me that, um, you know, that without this contract, without a, you know, attorney on staff and the steward structure, that so many people in our union would be out back pay, would be unfairly disciplined, could potentially be terminated and have very little recourse. Uh, you know, and that's this speaks to the value of having the union, you know, in general. I mean, the representation that people are awarded as a result of being a member of SEIU 503 really does not have a parallel if you do not have a union. Like if you are working in a, a non-union shop, a private, you know, business or or a non-union public employee situation, and something like this were to happen to you, like let's say you were unfairly terminated. I mean, there are recourses you can take, but you're paying for that out of pocket. And you're and you when if you don't have a contract, the chances that you are going to be able to hang your argument around something real are significantly reduced. I mean, in your experience, you know, what would someone like this person from DHS be facing if they didn't have a contract behind them? Yeah, I mean, w without a union contract, all empl employees in the state of Oregon are at-will employees, which means their employer can terminate them for any reason or no reason at all. They don't have to be given a reason to lose their job. And so by being in a union, by having union protections, um, employers can only act, can only discipline and terminate workers with just cause, and they have to provide due process um, and other procedures to ensure that workers have, have a right, have a uh, to be heard and to contest any allegations against them. That's not yeah, and, a situation that exists in non-union workplaces. Right. Uh, and historically this, you know, this has been used to protect women in the workplace, people of color, LGBTQ people, and has, you know, in, in ways made employment in union shops significantly more accessible and fair to underrepresented communities you know, across the country and across the world. And it's a, it's a powerful and important thing. Um, we're running out of time here. Um, but before we go, I just want to say that if um, anyone is interested in this kind of stuff, we really encourage you to reach out. We run regular steward trainings at our union that you can um, get plugged into by giving us a call uh, or by going to our website. And under the Get Involved section, there is a union steward section where you can click there and see the upcoming steward uh, trainings and get plugged in. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Jared, for joining us today. I really appreciate your perspective. This is an incredibly important part of our union. The steward and uh, legal representation piece is really the backbone of what we do. So thanks so much for your time. We're joined today by Joy Wilman, a home care worker and activist in our union. Joy, thanks so much for joining us. Before we jump in, uh, would you mind just briefly introducing yourself to everyone? My name is Joy Wilman. I currently hold the office of vice president of Local 99, the home care sector of Local 503. Thanks. I'm really excited that we have you here today because uh, you know, studying for home care workers is really unique. Like 
uh, unlike, sorry, many other sectors within SEIU 503, home care is really decentralized. There's no work sites and care providers are technically employed by the people they provide care for uh, under a program that's overseen by DHS. So there isn't a traditional management structure like you might have at a state agency or a university. And that really changes how the stewarding program was developed and what stewards do on a regular basis. And we'll get into all of that in a second. But since I have you here today, Joy, I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about the formation of the home care union in Oregon since you've been around for the whole thing. Uh, So I was hoping I could take you all the way back to the year 2000 when Measure 99 was on the ballot. Could you just tell us a little bit about how all of this got started? Sure. Actually, it got started before 2000 because we had to gather signatures to get it on the ballot to start with. But um, we passed Ballot Measure 99, which created a home care commission that would be our um, employer for the sake of bargaining. Um, And it allowed us to join the union. So it went through legislatively with House Bill 3816 after the ballot was approved overwhelmingly in the state of Oregon. Um, And that's how we got our start. Yeah. And then moving on from the ballot measure, you uh, had to go fight and win your first contract. Do you remember how uh, that happened? Oh, yeah. Um, Well, what we did and what we still do today is we send out surveys to our members and ask them what their um, main issues are. And um, we... Those are what we turn into our articles to take to the bargaining. And the first one was 17 months long, and it was quite an experience. I I am the only person that's been on every single bargaining team, and there will never be another one like the first one. The first one, we had to educate the state, and we had to educate DHS, and we had to educate the legislation about what home care is all about. Like in, in the case of Medicare, I mean, um, workers' comp and health care. Health care didn't want to take us on without uh, us having workers' comp. Workers' comp didn't want to take us on without having health care. So it took months and months and months of all being in the same room um, discussing things to try to come up with a solution, which we finally did, thank goodness. And um, of course, they were always thinking of the worst possible scenario that every home care worker was going to run forward and try to claim workers' comp and, and try to all go to the doctors and just really raise up the rates. And that wasn't the case. We ended up having a surplus at the end because people weren't doing that. But um, it was real educational. And and then and our steward program hadn't been started yet because, of course, you're only a steward to the contract. And if there's no contract, of course, you're not a steward yet. But we did work in that capacity um, just from a natural basis of trying to help people and, and solve the issues that were arising at the time. Sure. Uh, and real briefly, um, you know, before we get into the stewarding piece, like what has it meant for home care workers in the you know 20 years since that ballot measure passed? What's changed? A lot. We, at the time, when I first started with the union, which was about... 1998-ish. Um, I was making about 250 an hour. I am now making 1736 an hour. I'm one of one of the higher paid um, personal support workers, and um, we have created such a wonderful workforce. We have 
thousands and thousands and thousands of members. You can quote the exact number later, I suppose. But um, we have workers' comp. We have uh, health care. We have paid time off. We have an issues committee we can take issues to. We have the MRC, the Member Resource Center. We now have the MAC. Um, and we are constantly growing and learning. And in this COVID crisis we're having now, we're learning to do everything by Zoom and other um, other computer-related ways of connecting with people. And um, it's an ever-growing, ever-moving uh, scenario that we have to continually be up to date and continually change with the times that we're living in. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I've heard it described as, you know, life changing, the, the steps we've taken forward. You know, you mentioned healthcare, you mentioned workers comp. More recently, we won a retirement plan, which is one of the first retirement plans for home care workers in the country. And that's going to come online later this year. There's a lot of examples of stuff that are in the contract that are really important and worth defending. But, you know, it's it, it's not all smooth sailing. The, the home care system is still full of problems today. And many of the workers that I talk to, yourself included, talk about how they feel disrespected sometimes by the state. Uh, a great example of this would be the problem that we face with late paychecks. Uh, recently, DHS admitted to issuing 10,000 late paychecks to home care workers in 2018. You know, that's something that would never happen in other jobs. And you know, frankly, given that home care workers are a workforce of mostly women, mostly people of color, it really shines a spotlight on the systemic sexism and racism that exists today. Yeah, I mean, this kind of thing just wouldn't happen in a job that was dominated by men. Um, so I guess my point is there's still a lot to fight for, which is one of the reasons why we need strong stewards like you, Joy. So um, let's transition to that that topic a little bit. Um, we talked at the top a little bit about home care is unique. Uh, in that um, you have to develop a steward program that's specific to the challenges home care workers face. So you know, how, how have you and other home care workers approached that? Well, when we first started doing home care, like I said, I mean, doing stewardship, it was um, before the contract was actually developed. And um, we were just trying to solve people's problems as they were coming to us. But as the contract got up and running and we went to the issues committee at, at the home care commission and would tell them the issues it was like it was falling on deaf ears and so um during the second contract they kept saying well bring us the data if you don't have the data that we can't fix the problems because we need to know if it's out of just one particular office or if it's if it's clear across the state or you know just one particular worker or what's going on and so um we got together with 503 and 503 decided to create the member resource center so that we would have a place to collect the data when people had an issue they could call in and um, the MRC would then work with the stewards to help solve the problems and that worked really well in the beginning but then it kind of fell to the wayside and the MRC ended up taking up mostly all of the stewardship stuff. Um, there were particular cases that some people like myself got involved in, but generally speaking, the MRC was doing it all. And um, 
now we have it set up so that the MRC is working with our stewards. We have two chief stewards, a home care chief steward and a uh, personal support worker chief steward. And they're on the issues committee, and so am I. And they're also working with the MRC to create trainings for stewards so that we can bring them back up and start really activating and, and getting some stuff taken care of. Um, it's been a long time coming. And uh, when we first tried to start doing something like that, we had all the training pamphlets all done and everything. And then some organizers got moved around or left or whatever. And those training manuals got lost in the shuffle. So we had to start all over from scratch. And um, this time around, I was involved in it. I wasn't the last time around. And um, we took some of the training stuff that uh, DHS has already for their stewards, and then we adapted it to the home care sector because we are so different. We couldn't just use theirs cookie cutter like. We had to be able to adapt it to our own. And so um, the people at the MRC and now the new MAC that member assistance center? Member assistance center, right? That's a, a call center we've developed so you can call up SEIU and get your phone call answered on the first try. Right. Um, so they're they're both working together to help um, get the trainings up and going so we can then get our stewards trained and, and going forward. Um, several people that have already taken the steward training 101 are doing really good in their areas to help people um, with their issues before it gets to a worst case scenario. And um, I think that that's really imperative to try to, you know, if it's something simple, if we can get it taken care of right away, instead of having to use resources and time and money on something small, when we need to use that for the bigger, more intense um, grievances or issues that may come forward. Yeah, so it's really great to see that the program is picking up and gaining steam. Um, you know, maybe just kind of a really basic question. What are some of the issues that home care workers bring to stewards and need help with? Uh, the late pay. Um, there's uh, right now at the issues committee the other day, I was unable to go, but I heard back that they were discussing something that we brought up months and months ago and DHS hasn't done anything about it. And that's what do you do when you walk into your client's home and find them deceased? Hmm. What's the proper procedures? Um, and what do you do if you are get a phone call from either the caseworker or the family member that the person is deceased? Because that's different than what you do if you walk in and find them deceased. And so um, we discuss that with them about getting that put into trainings so that that is covered um, for the future. And um, late pay, of course, is always an issue in the time of COVID, getting the PPEs together and, and being able to, in our contract, we have it that they have to give us gloves, but we didn't have anything about masks because, of course, we didn't know anything about COVID, the la even up to the last contract that we just did. So um, going forward into the next contract, I'm sure we're going to have um, PPE language will be developed further to cover more things like masks. And I'm sure we're probably going to have a hazard pay piece put in there too, because a lot of people are, are losing hours or have more hours if their client can no longer go to the places they used to go during the day 
and are home more often, so the home care worker has to be there with them, or the PSW has to be there with them, then um, they're working over hours from what our designated hours originally were. And so that's another issue. Yeah. You know, it sounds to me like you're sort of playing two roles. One is enforcing the contract when things like um, access to gloves uh, or DHS isn't following through. But it also sounds to me like a lot of the work you're doing is identifying gaps either in contract language or in policies from the state and then bringing those issues forward so they can be addressed in the next contract. Right. Right. So that's actually, it's actually really interesting because you don't see that quite as much come forward in the conversations that we had um, in the previous segment with Mickey Varney, who's a steward for a state agency where it's really focused on uh, communicating with uh, coworkers about issues, but also just, you know, defending the contract is a real big thing. It's not quite as proactive in terms of finding things to go take back to the bargaining table. Is that something that you enjoy about the job? Is that, um, is that something that's really important for a steward to do in home care? Yes. Um, the, the reason being that we have to continually go forward. We can't go backwards and we can't, we can't just sit on our laurels and say, oh, we did a good job, we're done, because it's a constantly moving target because DHS is constantly changing the rules to start with on their side that has um, nothing necessarily that we could have a connecting finger on. And so we have to then shore it up on our side. And so um, like we might get a raise, but then DHS will cut somebody's hours. Well, it doesn't matter if I get paid more, if I'm working less hours, I'm not gonna be getting paid more, you know, five cents more an hour or whatever, if my hours have been cut with this particular client. So we have to shore up all shores all of the time. And um, sometimes that gets a little lopsided and we got to go work on it and bring it back into tow, like with these PPEs right now. So many people went without masks and everything that um, it was a real concern, especially during the lockdown and everything. I mean, we're essential workers. We have to be there. We can't just say, oh, I'm not going to come in today. Those clients have to have their services taken care of. And um, in some cases, that could be life and death if you don't show up for work. And so, you know, it's it's a whole different ball of wax than than just being a DHS worker. I mean, I'm not saying anything lightly about DHS workers. They have a heck of a job too, but us being frontline workers like we are, it's imperative that we get the proper equipment we need to be able to go in and work. And so if we don't have it in our language to back it up, to be able to go into a DHS office and say, we need this, then they won't they won't work with us on it. So we have to constantly see where any little differences are that have to be shored up in the contract so that when we go in whether we're a steward or we're just a regular worker we go in and we say we need this or something's going on with my hours or whatever that we're met with respect and able to talk the same language yeah i mean i think you really touched on one of the most core pieces of why having a union is so important for home care workers when you have that contract you know, they have to treat you with respect. They have to listen. It has to be done to the letter. And if it's not, then we have a, you know, a, an opportunity to recourse. Yeah, exactly. We have some way to push back on that. 
Um, so, you know, what if there's someone out there listening right now who, you know, has an issue and has a problem, they want to bring it to stewards, how would they get in touch with you and the other home care stewards? Well, generally speaking, on a normal day, you would be able to go into the um, office, your agency office, and in a perfect world, there would be business cards on the bulletin boards that would have the stewards' business cards up there, and you would just be able to call one of the stewards. Or you can always call the MRC, or now the MAC, um, and get get issues addressed there. And then if it's something that needs to have a steward too, then the people could um, relay it to whoever, whatever steward lives in your area. Um, in some cases, somebody at a regional meeting, for instance, will come up to the steward if you've been identified as a steward and say, I have an issue. And then they'll work, just start working with them from there. I get phone calls from people that I have no idea where they get my phone number from. Um, sometimes DHS even gives the number out. And um, so when they call me, what I do is, is I listen to what their issue is, and I ask them to write down every single thing that has happened. Every time they've called a DHS worker, every time the DHS worker has called them back or not called them back, record that too. And um, exactly what the situation is as far as what their concerns are. And every time anybody calls back and forth to DHS or to the MRC to write, or even to me, to write everything down. And then I meet with them and we will go through that list. And I tell them, you can even yell and cuss on this letter, you know, on this, this documentation or journaling if you want. And then we meet for coffee or something and we go over the documents that they have already written down. And I will tell them, well, this is something that we can take the issues committee, or this is something that we can file a grievance on, or this one over here is something that we can just talk to the DHS worker, you know, and I delineate what's plausible. And then, um, if there's something on there that isn't plausible or something that we can't fight, there has been times when they straight up were absolutely wrong. And I've had to let them down easy and say, we can take this forward, but you're not going to win. And here's why and show it to them in the contract. Why it wouldn't, why they did something against the contract themselves. And so sometimes you got to work both sides of it, but also like in one situation was kind of a real celebratory story where I met up with the lady and she had just a few weeks to go in and talk to the DHS worker about a week and a half. And so I, I did that with her. I had to write everything down. We got together. I saw what the issues were. I saw where the problems were. And I told her in one situation, she was just not trained in something. And I told her, you call now and you see about getting on a, a training for that particular thing. I said, you're not going to get the training before you go talk to them. But at least if you're already signed up for the training, it shows them that you're trying to rectify the situation. And so we went in, we had um, a perfectly good um, lineup of what we were going to say, what she was going to say and how she was going to say it. And um, we explained to them that she had the... Um, training all set up and everything already and that she was very sorry that she had done whatever it was but she did it not knowing she was doing something wrong and um she ended up winning her case 
And had I handled that differently, it probably wouldn't have worked out that way. But for them to know that, you know, oh, well, it's, she hadn't had the training, so she didn't know. And now she's signing up for the training and already signed up with the date to go to it. I think it made all the difference in the world. It's it's so important. I mean, what you're describing is such incredibly important work because you're helping people navigate a system that is really complicated and doesn't have the level of support that it, it deserves. Right. Uh, it's not provided by the program. It's really union stewards and the member assistance center and the member resource center that is filling in a, a gap. And right. It's so important to the, what you described right there, being able to one-on-one -on -one help a person navigate this thing. Someone like yourself who's experienced it before, who's been through it. Um, it just, it's, it's, it's everything. And I just wanted to real quick, just mention the, the number for the member assistance center in case anyone listening um, wants to get in touch with a steward, they can call 1-844-503-SEIU. That's 1-844-503-7348. And just tell them what, what's going on and what you need, and they'll connect you to the right place. Um, so I, I want to ask you, Joy, if someone out there is listening and they're interested in doing the kind of work that you do to help people, how can they get involved in the steward program? Um, one of the best ways they can get involved is find out when the trainings are happening and go to the Stewards 101 training because that you don't have to be a steward to go to it and it will help um, lay it out for you to see if that's what you want to do. Uh, in the meantime, my suggestion to them would be that they go to a regional meeting or right now go on Zoom to any of the Zoom regional meetings in their areas and start networking with people who are already stewards. And um, they can talk to them and see if that's, you know, the type of thing that their, their natural abilities might be stellar there for all I know. You know, I mean, if you... Sometimes a person thinks they want to be a steward, but then when they get into it, they find out that it's way too much for them, uh, that they're not confrontational type of people, or they don't want to deal with DHS like that or whatever. And so it's better to find out ahead of time that that's what you want to do instead of waiting until you're already in the thick of it, so to speak. Um, and also, a lot of times at our regional meetings, we would have networking. People would show up early if they had issues or they'd stay later if they had issues and talk with me and other stewards there. And um, and um, we might help resolve their situation at the time. We often call our uh, regional meetings our water coolers because we don't have an office where we can talk to people at the water cooler or talk to people over lunch or whatever. And so sometimes we troubleshoot at these meetings if somebody comes with an issue and that helps a lot. Other times, you know, they need a steward. And so one of us will pick it up. And um, in one case, somebody wanted me to help them with an issue and I couldn't because of my schedule, I was going out of town. And so I turned it over to another steward and they were just, so thankful to me for not just dropping the ball and, and, you know, making sure that they had somebody that would help them out while I was gone. So, you know, I think that networking is huge. I think going to your regional meetings are, are absolutely imperative. Um, and right now with the Zoom thing, 
you can find one that the date and time fits into your schedule more than having to drive to a regional meeting. Um, if you do drive to a regional meeting, you can be reimbursed for gas for mileage. And, um, you know, just go to the one that's closest to your location. But it's really, really important to stay in touch with um, your brothers and sisters. And the best way to do that is at the regional meetings. Yeah, so just a... a to help folks find some of the stuff that Joy's talking about, if you go to our website, SEIU503.org, and um, sign in as a home care worker, uh, you can click on the Get Involved button. And I don't know, some of the options under that include a union stewards page where you could see the events that are happening, um, trainings that are happening around the state. And then also there's the events calendar. Uh, where you can find home care regional meetings uh, that are um, right now they're all online, so it doesn't really matter where you're located. You can find one that works like uh, like Joy said for the time and date, and sign up to go to those online. Uh, we are also trying to tell our leaders in across the state to be sure and print out a. Um, calendar of events as far as regional meetings go to post on their bulletin boards so that that um, people will be able to see it there too. So if you don't have a uh, way to get online, for instance, or um, don't want to, then you can always go to, once the office is open, you can always go to the offices and check out the bulletin boards and hopefully we'll all have our um, upcoming meetings listed and we're trying to do it for a year out at a time so hopefully we can have those I mean not the day they open back up of course we have to go in and redo the bulletin boards now but um, they should be listed on the bulletin boards so I just want to make sure the bulletin board is something that I really fought for to get on the contract because it is a way to communicate with people and when they turn in their vouchers and stuff or their timesheets and I just want to make sure that they are not they don't fall to the wayside because the bulletin boards are hugely important for passing information on to people Great. Thank you, Joy, so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been really informative. Um, you know, thanks a ton, and we look forward to having you back again sometime soon to talk more. Anytime, anytime. Thank you. And that's a wrap on our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast. And if you give us a good rating and a comment, it'll help more people find the show. Thanks again. See you next time.